Hello and welcome, welcome, welcome to the Pem Pop 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 Pop. Hello. Where are we? We are popping popcorn at the Pem Podcast, episode number twenty-four. Oh God, I should start it over, but I don't feel like it because we're so professional. Why bother? Amateur hour? What? Amateur series. Yeah, seriously, seriously, hilarious. Um, yes, welcome to the PEM podcast, episode number 24. I'm your host, Victoria Laurie, my fabulous sister, Sandy, uh, at you every week or thereabouts, roughly, uh, trying to come at you every week. We don't always, always make it, but we come really, really close. We can um, be 10 days, just, you know. Exactly, exactly. So just keep checking in. I think what, what we have finally kind of decided on is that we will um, record and air these on Wednesdays. Um, cause if we, if we leave it to Friday, it's left up to me to when to post it and we can sort of a little hairy for me. So it could be, that's why we're 10 days sometimes. So if I just get to it on Wednesday and post it, I think we can be a little bit more regular, a little bit more time. Victoria doesn't like my texts on Monday morning. Why the hell is it? I know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, she's not that mean. Well, she is, but she's not that mean in text. <laughs> Typical older sister, Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. So, uh, yeah, you look pretty today, honey. You look very pretty. Uh, what is your I, color? Um, it's like, do you ever wear blue? It's the only color in my wardrobe other than black. So, see, and in honor, I also yes. am in blue. We didn't well, even call I, each other. We didn't even call each other, guys. Like, are we related or what? Great minds thinking alike. Yeah. So this, this necklace is my son's. I gave it to him for Christmas and he wears this really gnarly. It's not even silver. Like it's a gnarly chain that he found at a friend's house and just decided that he was going to keep it. So I thought, all right, well, why not give him something? Yeah. Why not give him something? Why not give her? Why not give him something that he could treasure? And how does he treasure it? He leaves it at home. He's not he here. treasures it from afar. He treasures it from around your neck. He knows well, it's safe, it, kept safe. Yeah. There's no place, there's no safer place than around his mother's neck. Truly. Apparently not. Yeah, exactly. Truly. No. We'll just go with that. Like, we'll just assume it's true. We'll, we will never ask him. We'll just assume. <laughs> that he is perfectly content for you keeping it safe for him until it's such a time as it benefits him to then wear it. So I think or we were just nice acknowledge gesture. it. I don't think the gesture was lost on him, Sam. Honestly, you know, he's a good kid. I try, I try constantly to capture his attention. It's like Lucy in the football and I'm, I'm Charlie Brown. <laughs> it's been and he's the, decades he's the football. <laughs> decades, decades. She, and she always calls me like she's shocked that he's ignoring her. And I'm uh, decades. <laughs> it's tough. I'm beloved by most people except my son. So there you go. <sighs> he loves me. He answers my calls. Exactly. <laughs> my texts. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes, he's a good kid. They're both really good kids. Good, good, good kids. Okay, so I have the very. I don't know if we did we decide are we doing well. So in honor of or? in honor of PEM, which stands for Psychic Eye Mysteries. Uh, the podcast, we are going to focus on for now, the Abby Cooper Psychic Eye Mysteries series of books. 
So starting in chrono chronological Who's order. Because also in blue. <laughs> you know, blue as an aura color, as you have often told me, is a, a thinker. I am the thinker. She is. She is. I'm and the dreamer. Also She's the thinker. Yeah. For sure. Um, yeah. So book number one, Abby Cooper, Psychic Guy. Um, this, this was a title I actually came up with, expecting it to be changed. Um, and I was really rather shocked when the publisher was like, no, no, we love the name. I was like, what? Stupid. <laughs> there are series it has was proven <laughs> that, it, you know, I think I've sold like a quarter million copies of this book, actually. I'm pretty sure there's like 200 to 250 copies um, of this little puppy, of this, of this little, my little baby um, out Keep there. Keep buying it. Keep buying it. Yeah, exactly. Um, so uh, it's the first in the series introduces you to Abby and her sister Kat, who is modeled after loosely based. <laughs> sometimes a little more than others. <laughs> Loose, loosely and sometimes even more loosely based. Uh, yeah, so Kat is modeled. Um, or Kat, you're introduced to Kat. And you're actually introduced to Abby's version of Kat because, um, you know, there's like my experience with my sister, which is the entire history of, you know, basically my life. I've known her my whole life. And how you kind of always view through the optics of a sibling, you know, at the, uh, at your, at, it, I can't you know, I'm really intrigued today. by this. I'm I just, intrigued by your just, line of thinking. It's not working. Please. Mine's broken. The audience. This is broken. <laughs> <laughs> Please convince the audience why this is not necessarily modeled versus loosely based on me. Please go ahead. I'm interested. I'd like to know. Because Abby has a, has a harsher view of her sister. Yes. Yes. So, so this is not actually Kat's personality. Kat's personality comes out in the Life Coach Mystery Series, which is has her as the protagonist. So um, aware that there are often times when I view my sister as my sibling rather than, you know, my BFF, um, I, my perspective of her and her actions and um, stuff that she says change, changes. So that's why Kat is a little bit in this book, she's a little bit harsher, a little bit. Mm, there's more of a caricature. Boss, bossier. Yeah, definitely. I don't know. But, where but between the two of us, I think you're, I'm not bossy. You are the biggest boss ever. Oh my God. I'm so not. Yes, you are. <laughs> oh my God. Sandy. Oh my God. Every you conversation you're telling right me. They're like, oh my God. Does she not realize? <laughs> oh, you're adorable. I love you so much. I do. <laughs> No, I super, super do. Um, so anyway, so Abby Cooper, Psychic Guy. This is the beginning in the series where Abby, <clears throat> who's just kind of enjoying her life as a professional psychic. I don't know where she gets that from. Um, and she happens to go out on a blind date with a, a gentleman who's a uh, tall, blonde, handsome, um, blue-eyed. of water. Drink water. Mm -hmm. um, kind of similar to the the one I'm dating now. Hmm. Hmm. Anyway, um, so she goes out on a date with uh, Dutch Rivers, who says he's in security. He's really a police officer at this point. And Abby has one too many margaritas. Um, she has one too many margaritas in a lot of the books. 
I'm starting to wonder if people think I'm a lush. <laughs> I'm not, I swear. <laughs> um, <laughs> I wish I could be. I wish I could be. That would be that would be wonderful. But I, you know, like you can't drink excessively and do this work, unfortunately, or fortunately, I guess. I don't know. Um, anyway, so she goes uh, out on the state with Dutch, un unbeknownst to her that he is a uh, police officer. She has one too many drinks. She starts talking about a murder that she's seen on the news and she identifies the killer. He follows the clues, um, finds the killer, and uh, then suspects her. How could she know so, so many of these inside facts? So it's just kind of back and forth and there's a larger murder, um, a larger uh, murder mystery, I should say, um, uh, evolving. <clears throat> One of Abby's clients ends up dead. So um, that's the first in the series. And what I love about, like I started rereading this a couple of years ago and um, I tend to write, <clears throat> put it down, once it's finished, once it's released. And I just don't even think about reading it again. I'm just on to the next, on to the next. So going back and reading it was really, um, from the perspective of just a read, it was really fun um, uh, to see where I was in life writing this um, and how that was sort of reflected in the writing. And um, the fact that there's no cell phone, <laughs> There are messages left on answering machines. <laughs> um, yeah, there's, I don't even think I mentioned very much uh, the internet. I don't even think I talk a lot about the internet. So um, yeah, it's kind of a nostalgic kind of thing. Um, yeah, so pick it up. If you are interested, you can buy it anywhere books are sold. Um, Abby Cooper, Psychic Eye. If you want to learn a little bit more about my books or about me, or if you want to schedule a reading with me, They've been amazing lately. Um, please go to victorialaurie.com. Laurie is spelled L-A-U-R-A-E. If you're watching this on YouTube, I'm going to put a link in for the appointment page. If you want to just bypass my website and go straight to the appointment page, you're more than welcome to do that. Get on my calendar. Um, and if you like our channel, if you like our podcast and want to keep seeing it, um, please hit the like button. Helps us out. The subscribe button super helps us out and the bell to get notified of new podcasts when they become available. So I think I've plugged it. We're going to do another plug later. So just so you know, so you're prepared. So anyway, okay. So I had the, I had the best reading last night. Oh my God, Sandy, I had the best reading. So um, a beautiful woman <clears throat> shows up on my Zoom, the other side of my Zoom. She's been recommended by one of my other clients, which is not a surprise about 90% of my business is probably a referral, which is nice. Um, and uh, so I start, even before I can like even get her name and her birth date out of her, this uh, older gentleman comes dashing in from mom's side of the family, right? Kind of bulldozes his way into my energy. So um, I asked her, I said, were you close to your maternal grandpa, grandfather? Because bam, he's like hitting me right in the face. She's like, you know, instant tears, right? So I know that they were close. So he starts showing me a stethoscope and he gives me this impression like he's so proud of the doctor. Right. So I'm like, okay, so who's the doctor who's in healthcare? He's so proud of this person in healthcare. She's a physician and he always wanted that for her. Um, and then he uh, drew a line down from underneath her and gave me an indication that she had a son. I asked her if she did. He, uh, she verified. And he said, it was kind of, I, they don't really say words, they just sort of give you a feeling or kind of an inference. 
um, or imagery, right? So he was tapping him, himself, and then tapping down himself and down. And that is my symbol for the boy, my, the boy is named after grandfather. So I asked her, I said, is your son named after your grandfather? She's like, yes, yes. I did that to honor my, my grandfather. So, um, so it's like this beautiful kind of almost reunion, right? Um, and the room where he is coming from, where the grandfather is coming from, starts to fill up with all of these relatives. And she's from Bolivia. And, and so, you know, very tight, tight um, community and family um, and, and several members. And um, uh, then her mom comes in. And her mom, um, I asked, I said, did your mom die of a wasting disease like cancer? Yes. Um, and uh, her mom started showing me um, shoes, like sneakers. Like she was dangling sneakers like this. And I'm like, I have no idea what that means, right? So I said, Does do sneakers mean anything to you? Um, your mom is waving these this pair of sneakers. Well, it turns out my client, um, when she heard uh that her mother was uh had cancer, diagnosed with cancer, she flew down to Bolivia to um take care of her. And she brought with her a comfortable pair of shoes. So uh that her mother, you know, unfortunately never never wore but her mother wanted her to give it to her mother's best friend. So her mom was mentioning the shoes. And then um, her mom did this, like made, made the sign of a cross. So I knew that she was devout because anytime anybody does this, it means devout. They can be Jewish, but they can be devout, right? That's just my symbol. So her mom does this with the cross and then she lays it on her chest. And I said, do you have your mom's cross? Um, because your mom's making me feel like she had a necklace that was a cross and, and um, my client isn't wearing any jewelry and she goes immediately like this and she's like, yes, I have my mom's cross. I'm just not wearing it today. I'm like, well, you honor your mom with this. And, um, and then her mom was made a big point of saying, thank you for taking care of me. Thank you for taking care of me. And this had actually been something that was weighing on my client's uh, conscience because when she flew to Bolivia, she's a hospice um, physician. So when she flew to Bolivia and her mom was entering hospice, she went into doctor mode and she felt like she should have been more kind of daughter mode. So she had this, you know, all of this guilt, she was carrying all of this guilt that like, like she didn't, somehow she didn't serve her mother and her mother was just so thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank, thank you. And then her mom was talking about, um, something to do with her burial. And um, that she was very pleased about the way it turned out. Well, <clears throat> um, there wasn't a lot of room left <laughs> for the family plots. So they put her mother's ashes, I believe, uh, next to or, or in the same sort of plot as her father. Um, and so her mother was very, very pleased about that. And that was another thing I think that was weighing on my client. Like, this is going to be okay with mom. Totally okay with mom. Um, and, oh, and then this was really interesting too. Her mother, um, really adored my client's son, um, just loved him, loved her grandson. And she was showing me stuff like, um, stuff that you can pull apart and put back together, like Legos and stuff. And I said, well, does your son like, you know, does he have kind of an engineering mind? Does he love to take apart stuff? She's like, oh my God, with the Legos, it's crazy. He's always pulling them apart and putting them back together. He wants to be a city planner. And I'm like, oh, this kid's definitely headed in that direction. Um, and then, so like there were other relatives that were coming in and out and it was just, it was just glorious because everybody was, it was so clear. It was so wonderful. And uh, we actually went way, way over time because there was just a parade of people kind of coming up to the veil. 
Um, and then after I got off the phone with her, I was just so, um, I felt so blessed that they came to, they all came to the veil and that they were so uh, specific. And so, you know, I was just, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And I heard applause. And, you know, that really humbled me, actually. It was really cool. So, um, yeah, I'm digging it. <laughs> but it was one of the most beautiful readings I've done in a long time. It was really lovely. Um, so, if you Bye. have, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say, if you are carrying around any guilt related to the care that you provided or decisions that you made at the, at the bedside of a dying relative, please, please, please let that go because they have, they absolutely 100%, they don't carry that onto the other side. It's rare that they even remember the, their final days. Um, uh, so let it go, let it go. It doesn't serve you. It only weighs your energy down. It makes, that, makes it harder for them to connect with you. Um, however you showed up, even if you didn't show up, it's okay. I swear to God, it's okay. They don't harbor any grudges over there. So let it go. Let it go. Go ahead, Sansa. I was simply going to say that I think the greatest gift you can give to someone is to see them through to the other side, um, whether that is at their bedside or caring for them or, you know, being their advocate health-wise or okay. even from a distance, you know, saying, saying your prayer, sending loving thoughts for the more, sure. it's just a, an amazing gift to be able to give to someone rather than, 100%. and I think it's hard when you, when you wait, when you're worn down by the guilt or you're worn down by, you know, could I, should I, would I have done things differently? Sure. Like you say, it doesn't matter. It's the fact that you thought of that person enough to help them transition. Right. And even if it's not at their bedside, the fact that right. you're thinking of them and wishing them, right. you know, to be free of pain and to have a smooth transition, I think is one of the greatest gifts you can give. Absolutely. I completely agree. And you have to also remember that <clears throat> that transition is something that you're not a part of, because if you were part of the specific transition, you'd be dying too. So it's, it's up to the people on the other side when the soul is ready to go to kind of be like, okay, this way, here's the rainbow bridge, you know, here we go. Um, so all you're doing is just bringing them to the gate, so to speak. And the rest is left up to uh, other souls and you have no control over that. Um, so as long as you put any effort at all in helping them or assisting them um, through either well wishes or being at their bedside or caring for them, with their, you know, with their last breath, as long as you just get them to the gate, they will do the rest. So you all 100% can lift any guilt or what I should have, could, could I kind of feelings aside. So yeah, I, I agree since 100%. Now I, that's not like, oh, and everybody should feel good about it. It's a horrific experience watching someone that you love transition. Um, and yeah, we are innately we carry guilt because it's, it's, you know, I, I let, they died on my watch, right? Even if it has nothing to do with whatever you do, you still carry some guilt. So like I think it's great like to, death is a failure. It's not. Yes. Yes. I think that's a brilliant statement. Yeah. Um, so I like that you're sharing that they don't carry it with them. And so go through your process. Everybody has a process. Right. It's very individual, very unique, right. but um, the end should be joyous. The end should be the fact that there was love between you and whomever's crossed mm -hmm. versus the sad ending that it was. Mm -hmm. There's so many 
of my clients that um, come to me burdened with um, guilt. And it's, and it's just, it's so hard because sometimes they've been burdened with guilt for like decades. And um, none of that transitions, none of it, none of it, none of it transitions. So um, you can let it go. It's okay. I promise. <laughs> well, I also like that, you know, the guilt is what weighs the energy down versus yeah. the joy helps lift the energy up. So the connection can be stronger with your thinking of them in a joyous way rather than in a painful way. Sure. For sure. I often say things like, you know, that gets left here. <clears throat> and to your point, Sandy, you know, about the weight of certain emotions. So guilt, anger, vengeance, um, uh, anything that is kind of a, of a darker emotion will not cross the veil. Um, happiness. Um, sometimes I get like a little bit of worry, a little bit of worry. Um, but it's just all of the sort of lighter emotions, those go across, oops, those go across. So, so, um, so it's not why God, why that's not like, that's not me. <laughs> that's a you thing. That's a specific <laughs> just to you, babe. Um, yeah. So I know. <laughs> um, so um, if you want to do anything to try and connect with those souls on the, if you want to try and feel them, I think it's really important that you set that guilt aside or to be like, okay, this doesn't serve me. I can let it go because it doesn't serve you. It really just weighs your energy down so that you can experience a love and a joy. Um, I'm sorry, my dog is, <laughs> it was not the birds, the dog or the train. <laughs> my God, I would have, I would, it would be quieter a bus station. I swear to God. Um, <clears throat> so um, if you can let that go, if you can set it aside, and raise your energy, meaning it's easier for them to connect with you through a beam of love than you feeling weighed down by guilt um, or excessive sadness. Sometimes it's really hard for them to reach you when you experience extreme bereavement. And that doesn't mean that you shouldn't feel that. That's normal, healthy. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's a killer being left behind. It's a killer. It hurts. It hurts like a motherfucker. So, um, that's just to say, if you want to try and connect with them, you can just move those emotions just a little bit to the side, wrap yourself in that love that you feel for them and see if you don't start feeling them. That's my, that's my recommendation, my advice. So that was, it was just a beautiful, beautiful. Um, and the one right after was really kind of amazing too, because it was the opposite end of the spectrum. I was reading for a woman who, uh, whose father was like a criminal. <laughs> And he came through and boy, was he a character, man. He was absolutely a character. So, um, and he was taking ownership of all of his bad behavior. And he was telling me specifically that he was doing penance um, for his bad behavior on the other side. It was his choice to go through some sort of penance um, on the other side. So there wasn't a get out of jail, literally get out of jail free card. So it was really interesting really interesting so anyway okay so let's get to uh this case this case is another toughie they're all tough um but um i think it's important you know to kind of talk about it because it's such an injustice um kind of makes me mad um in a similar way to what was the family that we did in alaska what they called again it was springfield three no oh, the last family yeah. The one in Alaska. Oh, the um, investor vote. 
yes. murders. Yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of, it's a little similar to that. So let me cue it up. Boop-a-doo. Uh, okay. We're going to cue it up and I want to go here and I want to go here. Okay. Take it away, Sims. Okay. So uh, this is about the disappearance of Sabrina Eisenberg. And at 6.42 a.m. on November 24th, 1997, 33-year-old Marlene Eisenberg called 911 from the Volroco, Florida home where she and her husband, Stephen, 34, lived with their dog, Brownie, and their three children, William, aged eight, Monica, aged four, and five-month-old Sabrina. Awakened by the noisy fish tank or perhaps the television alarm, Marlene got up out of bed and discovered that her brown hair, blue-eyed baby, Sabrina, was missing from her crib, along with her yellow blanket. After a frantic inspection of her home, Marlene realized that the garage door had been left open all night, and the door leading from the house to the garage was also open. However, other than the two open doors, nothing else seemed out of place. There was no sign of forced entry or a ransom note, and nothing other than her daughter appeared to be missing from the home. Marlene later recounted, I noticed the laundry room door to the garage is opened, and I'm like, whoa, what's that doing open? And I just ran to the first bedroom, and I looked in, and Sabrina's crib, <clears throat> and she was gone. And I was just like, you know, I was like hysterical. Steve, Steve, Sabrina's missing. Sabrina's gone. On the 911 call, Marlene said, I need the police. My baby has been kidnapped. Through sobs, she told a dispatcher that she had awoken to find five-month-old Sabrina missing from her crib and that the garage door of their home was open. Haroldborough County Sheriff's de deputies arrived within 30 minutes. They found no sign of a break-in and nothing but baby Sabrina and her blanket missing. The first officer on the scene thought the couple did not appear very upset for parents who had just lost their daughter. As detectives assessed the circumstances, they took stock of the dirty dishes in the kitchen and children's toys scattered about the house. They also noted several photographs of the Eisenberg's older children, William and Monica, but only a few photos of Sabrina. A massive search for Sabrina and her alleged abductor was launched and deputies removed several items from the Eisenberg home, including Sabrina's crib and bedding for analysis at an FBI lab. News of the kidnapping sent shockwaves through the local community and frightened its residents, especially young parents. The neighborhood was a quiet, safe, and out of the way, not the kind of place where a baby would just disappear. As the search for baby Sabrina went on, the Eisenbergs taped a public appeal pleading for her return. The plea might have inspired sympathy for Steve and Marlene, but the media drew attention to their smiling demeanor outside of their home, which community members found circumspect. The Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office also grew suspicious of the Eisenbergs because they found the couple's on-camera behavior to be cold and detached, and their stories were inconsistent. Marlene later commented that it took all her strength that I had to say what I had to say, and then the minute I was done, I broke down in tears. But of course, the cameras were not put on me then. At first, the Eisenbergs agreed to cooperate with police. Both Steve and Marlene took polygraph tests. Steve passed his, but Marlene's first, tale, taste, sorry, Marlene's first test was inconclusive and she failed her second test. After the second polygraph, Marlene said the police questioning became more aggressive, in part due to a video that Marlene took of Sabrina just days before she vanished. On it, investigators thought they saw bruises on the baby's face and a patch of hair missing from her head. Detectives suspected child abuse. With that, Marlene and her husband became prime suspects. Marlene was floored by the accusation. To me, it was like the most unbelievable thing I could have ever heard. And I was like, I have no idea where Sabrina is. I have no idea who took her. That's why you're here. You know, help, help her, find her. 
The family eventually hired famed lawyer Barry Cohen, who ended the police's unfettered access to the parents. Months passed with no sign of baby Sabrina. Lieutenant Greg Brown of the Harrellsboro County Sheriff's Office stated that most of the leads in the case had resulted in a dead end, although they had not ruled the Azenbergs out. To keep the case forefront in the media, in early 1998, the Azenbergs made several TV appearances on national news shows, including Dateline NBC, Larry King Live, and Geraldo Rivera. On their second Dateline NBC appearance, Marlene proclaimed total disbelief at the situation. Not only is my daughter gone, but they think I had something to do with it. It's just unbelievable. State prosecutors never charged the Azenbergs in connection with Sabrina's disappearance. Seeking support from their family in May of 1999, the Azenbergs moved into Stephen's childhood home in Bethesda, Maryland, and took up residence with Stephen's dad. Then on Friday, September 10th, 1999, almost two years after Sabrina's disappearance, federal agents used a battering ram to splinter the Azenbergs' front door to serve a warrant charging the couple with conspiring and lying to investigators about the alleged kidnapping of their infant daughter in 1997. The long indictment formally accused the couple of lying, of misleading investigators and, and the public about the baby's disappearance and of capitalizing financially on the case's publicity. The filing went on to suggest that the Azenbergs knew what happened to the baby, that they may have been responsible for the infant's death and that they had a long family pact to conceal Sabrina's real fate. The indictment revealed that prosecutors had bugged the Azenbergs' Florida home for three months after Sabrina's disappearance, and it alleged that prosecutors had recorded conversations between the couple in which Steve had talked about killing Sabrina while high on cocaine. Quote, the baby's dead and buried, the indictment quotes Marlene as telling Stephen on December 23, 1997. It was found dead because you did it. The baby's dead no matter what you say. You just did it. Honey, there was nothing I could do about it, the document quotes Stephen telling Marlene in what appears to be the same conversation. We need to discuss the way we can beat the charge. I would never break from the family pact and our story, even if the police were to hold me down. We will do what we have to do. On January 21st, 1998, the indictment says Stephen told Marlene, I wish I hadn't harmed her. And on February 17th, 1998, it says Stephen told Marlene, they don't know the truth, right? Yeah, Marlene replied, so, so in a way, you know, that means nobody knows what we did still. Exactly, her husband said. However, the Azenbergs were not charged with the killing of their baby, and after denying all charges in a U.S. district court hearing, each posted a $25,000 bond and were released from custody. When the defense team scrutinized the state-filled audio, they couldn't hear many of the statements alleged in the indictment. Other statements were misinterpreted. The the defense hired Bruce Koenig, a former FBI agent and an ex expert in forensic audio. After he listened to the tapes, he said he could not hear a single one of the statements prosecutors claimed were the most incriminating. The defense concluded that most of the dialogue was of people going through a grieving process. And of the most incriminating and incendiary statements that the government said were there, those statements were not audible. After a federal, federal judge declared the tapes inaudible and the transcripts faulty, and in February of 2001, the prosecution dropped the charges before the trial began. In February of 2004, in a rebuke for bad faith prosecution, an appeals court ordered the federal government to reimburse the Azenbergs almost $1.5 million in defense fees. The last public break in the case occurred in 2008. A police informant claimed that his cellmate had told him that he'd retrieved a boat from the Azenbergs as part of a plan to dispose of Sabrina's body in Tampa Bay. It turned out to be false information. The Azenbergs never owned a boat. Steve Azenberg said, I know there are always going to be people that think Marlene and I had something to do with Sabrina's disappearance. We did not. 
There have been over 4,000 interviews conducted on the case and Sergeant Samuel Bailey, who now heads up the Azenberg case, quote, over 2,600 leads have been followed up on in all 50 states, Mexico, Canada, and some European countries. Today, the Azenbergs both work as real estate agents in Maryland and in their home have kept a bedroom for Sabrina. Their son, William, now 31, practices medicine, and their daughter, Monica, now 27, works with adults with special needs. Steve has said, I still believe Sabrina is out there, and now that she's 24, we hope that she'll feel like she's part of her, I'm sorry, we hope that she'll feel like a part of her is missing and she'll try and find us. Since Sabrina's disappearance, Marlene has maintained her belief that somebody came into our home and just took her. It had to be someone who wanted a baby so bad, and they couldn't have one themselves, or they needed money so bad that they would want to sell her. My sources for this story include ABC News, <clears throat> 20 years after Sabrina Eisenberg vanished, her parents hoped she could be on her way home, uh, by Sean Dooley, Emily Whip, and Lauren Efron, March 14, 2018, unsolved.com, date of birth, 627-97, brown hair, blue eyes, last seen, 11-24-97. Maryland Parents' Story of Kidnapping Unravels by Michael E. Ryan, Washington Post staff writer, Saturday, September 11th, 1999, and the Tampa Bay Times, 20 Years Baby Sabrina Eisenberg Disappeared, Still a Mystery by Dan Sullivan, published November 25th, 2017. So what do you think happened, Victoria? I don't know that I'm gonna be very popular for this one, but um, the, the second I started reading about Sabrina, I'm like, the parents did it. Like, they did it. <laughs> they freaking did it. Um, the father, in particular, to me, resonates as guilty. His energy just kind of resonates as guilty. Um, I believe Sabrina died prior to the night she disappeared. Um, I believe she died Friday night. Um, I think that she was disposed of uh, Saturday. And it's my belief that... Um, she was taken to a swamp and left to the gators. Um, I used to live in Hillsborough County. Um, before I moved to Hillsborough County, I was worried about alligators because I was living in Michigan and I was a little worried about alligators. And everybody here who had been to Florida were like, you'll never even see one. Don't sweat it, you'll never see one. Yeah, first month in, first month in, driving home, it's dusk. And I see an armadillo crossing the road. I'm like, oh my God, an armadillo, that's so cool. So I slow down, I creep up, I'm in a Jeep, creep up and the armadillo starts to grow and it starts to grow. <laughs> and then I realize it's not a fucking armadillo. <laughs> it's an alligator. It's a big ass fucking alligator in the middle of a four lane road, one of the busiest uh, roads between Tampa and St. Pete, it's fourth street. Um, right where my apartment was. And uh, this thing literally just stops in front of my Jeep and I can't get around it because it's, it's taking up several lanes. So then like I haunt my horn, nothing happens. So I backed up and this thing whips around and its tail hits the Jeep and puts a dent in it. Like this thing was massive. So I get to my apartment and I've got two little dachshunds. So I'm concerned because literally this thing was right right at the entrance of where I lived. So I call, I call the sheriff and I'm like, there's, there's an eight foot alligator walking around the property. And he goes, there's a what? I'm like, there's a 10 foot alligator walking around the property. He's like, 
at, oh, oh, oh. and I'm like a 15 foot alligator walking around the property. Just kept growing in size, right? Just get out there and find it and kill it and move it. Do something the with Loch Ness it. monster is front of my house. Know, yes, Godzilla. Godzilla. <laughs> so <laughs> he's breathing fire. I don't know. Exactly. <laughs> so, um, so the dispatcher says to me, he goes, um, do you want to, do you want us to call you and tell you what, you know, what we found? And I'm like, I fucking do call me, you know, like, absolutely. I want that. No, I just want to be left in the dark about what, what you discovered, please. You know, I'm not terrified enough. So, um, I swear to God, six minutes later, like it just was like really quick. I get the call back from the dispatcher and they're like, yeah, they looked, they didn't see anything. And I'm like, I'm thinking that this, the following scenario happened, right? 15 foot alligator seen at such and such address, right? <laughs> the responding officers drive up from the safety of their <laughs> squad car, take a flashlight, shine it out. Here, kitty, 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 kitty. You know, like, nope, I don't see one. Mm, must not be there. And they drove on. Yeah, no, they weren't going to go looking. So, um, and, you know, in that, it, it is very swampy in that um, county. And um, so it's my belief, unfortunately, um, that that's uh, the reason I don't think we'll ever find Sabrina's remains. I believe that she was disposed of. Um, I did tune in on um, where Sabrina, you know, might be now, um, where's her soul. And um, immediately I had the feeling that she has uh, come back through and she has come back through her brother. Um, that's my feeling. And then when I did a little bit more research, um, I discovered that he um, recently had a, a child. Um, please don't look him up. Please let him be. <laughs> please. <laughs> um, so that's kind of, you know, that's my theory. And I understand that there's a lot of reasonable doubt because there is no evidence. There's no evidence of what happened to her. But here's my thinking, guys, just from a logical standpoint, if you don't believe in, you know, my psychic ability, Here's my thinking, because I write murder mysteries for a living and I've been doing it for 22 years. So when you do that, you have to get in the mindset of a killer, murderer, thief, robber, whatever, right? You have to get into the mindset of someone who is willing to commit um, breaking the law and trying to cover their tracks. First of all, when Sandy and I were talking about this, I was like, I bet you anything, that garage door was not left up on a weekday. It was left up on a weekend. And the reason it was left up was so that the neighbors could say, oh yeah, I, I remember seeing the garage door was up. And it's a Sunday, which is kind of normal, right? Because we're, we're doing yard work. We're coming in and out of our houses all the time on Sundays. We're like going to the grocery store, bring groceries back. So it's not unusual, really, for a garage door to be left up on a weekend night. If it were left up on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, like a, like a during the week, it probably would be a little bit more noticeable, right? You might notice it a little bit more just because when you pull into the garage, you have a habit, right? Garage door up, press the button, pull in, garage door down, press the button, and then you go inside. So um, I believe that they chose <clears throat> the night in question and made themselves kind of available outside see for being seen. Um, so that it could be plausible, like, oh, we forgot and left the garage door up. And the, the door to the house also open, 
left unlocked. Uh, you know, I lived in Hillsborough County and they might've thought that they were super duper safe in a quiet little neighborhood, but um, I was there in 2000 and nobody was doing that. Like that's, that's unusual, that's weird. Um, the next thing is, so you're telling me that someone wanted this child, right? Um, and just happened to drive by the night the garage door was up, right? Um, coincidence much? And that they knew the layout of the interior of the home enough to go straight to Sabrina's bedroom, pick her up out of the, out of the crib without making a single sound. So you go to reach for a one-year-old, right? How old was she? Oh, five months, right? Sorry, yes, five months. Yeah, five months. Okay, so you're going to pick up a child, a baby, right, from her crib and be like, yeah, she's not going to fuss. I'm okay with picking her up, right? Like the, the parents probably should have had and would have had um, a baby monitor in the room, yeah, right? So they could have likely. heard a disturbance or her waking up or her fussing, okay? Because if you're a newborn mom, you're kind of attuned to that noise, right, Sans? Yes, uh, yes. Yeah. So, yeah. um, so they like pick this sleepers. Child. Yeah. They pick up this child and the blanket, which is also another key, right? If you're going to dispose of your, your, your baby daughter, you are going to wrap her in a blanket and then, you know, place her in the swamp. I don't think that they just chucked her body. I think that they wrapped her in her blanket and let her float off. I think that, uh, she was murdered through shaken baby syndrome. I believe the husband did it. And I believe the wife is complicit in helping to um, cover it up. There's no body. There's no other evidence. Just Sabrina and her blanket are gone. So again, right? Whoever was out to grab this baby or saw it as a crime of opportunity, which is kind of what they're, the parents are sort of proposing. It was sort of a crime of opportunity, right? Here's a baby. I can sell the baby. Really? <laughs> like, Really? Um, so you're going to take the baby out of its crib, risk it fussing and alerting everyone, run to the car without the car seat, without pacifier, without toy to occupy the child's attention, right? Just what, put it in the trunk? Like, come on. I mean, seriously, come on. It's so preposterous and so ridiculous that I would absolutely agree with the FBI and their tactics of trying to storm the house and scare the parents and hope and pray for a confession. Because I think that was the only way that they could attempt to help solve the, the crime. I think that they kind of came to the same conclusion that I'm coming to, like it's just too ridiculous to believe. Um, and uh, I have seen that photo of little Sabrina with the patch of hair missing and the cuts on her face. And it's like, Okay, you know, babies are a little clumsy, you know, maybe she knocked into something, but there's a scattering of cuts on her face. And how do you lose a big patch of hair? You know, I, what I know of uh, childhood abuse, homes where there's childhood abuse, is that more often than not, it's one child that gets picked on. And they are the recipient of most of the abuse. And I have a feeling that it was Sabrina who was that um, receptor of all that um, abuse. That's just my, that's my gut feeling. Um, <clears throat> so I find their story ridiculous. I find the fact that she failed, she probably failed both lie detector tests, but they gave her the benefit of doubt. Um, and, uh, I think that he, every time I look at him, 
through my psychic eye. I'm just like guilt, 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 guilt. He's guilty. He's guilty. He's fucking guilty. So, you know, again, they weren't acquitted. They weren't, um, there was no trial. This is just my opinion, but it's my intuitive opinion. Um, and if I'm proven wrong someday, if, you know, Sabrina walks in a 24, healthy 24 year old and is like, hi, mom and dad. Okay. I am happy to be wrong. 100%. I'm so happy to be wrong. I don't think I am. I just don't think I am. So, um, yeah, I'm just, you know, if, if it is true that she has cycled back through her brother, um, he, from what little I know of him, he looks like an upstanding young, uh, uh, man, um, who is doing the world a lot of good. Um, and I think that her choice to come back through probably to, to his line was a really good one. I think he's, I think he's probably a terrific person and a terrific father. So, um, I'm just not buying his parents' story at all, at all. So I just don't buy it. There isn't, it's almost like there isn't enough evidence for it not to be them. Does that make sense? Well, I think that was the problem for authorities was there yeah. just wasn't any evidence. There's no body that if, if, if the, if she passed away as a result of shaken baby syndrome, there's no blood trail, right? nothing to find really, unfortunately. Right. So all they have is the word of the parents who've never changed their story. Well, right. in theory in a big picture way, right. um, you know, what are you going to convict them on? Exactly. I don't think that it was very clear on the transcripts either. I think that that also was an effort by the FBI to solicit uh, some kind of a confession. You know, if they could say, listen, we have you on tape saying this. The problem is the translation of what they said is not how people talk. Um, so I think they, I think that, um, the two parents, I think that they understood that they wouldn't use those words in that way. And were kind of just able to sort and they had a good lawyer, were able to just shut up and not say anything and be like, we're totally shocked at this, that you're looking at us. Mm -hmm. No, you're not. No, you're not shocked at all. You got away with it, my feeling. So, and then they get paid for it. Well, actually they just recoup legal fees. So the lawyers were the ones that got paid, but the fact that justice was not served and that in fact, the government or authorities had to pay. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. It's, it's like compounded injustice. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's totally implausible to me that someone just happened to drive by, see the garage door up, crime of opportunity, walk into the, walk into Sabrina's bedroom kidnap her without making any noise, take only her blanket, you know, dumb. It's a dumb theory. It's just ridiculous. So that's my, that's my theory. And it might be dumb and ridiculous, but that's my theory. So anyway, so um, we have a good case next week too, I think. I don't know that we want to talk about it. It was the one that you and I talked about today. The it is. One. The second one, the one, you sent me two and you were like, decide between oh, these two. Okay. And this is the one I wanted to do first. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I don't remember what it is. <laughs> She's so good when I put her on the spot, man. Yeah, she just like, boop, just takes the ball and runs with it. Yeah, yeah. High lob, a high lob. Come on, whip it, <laughs> hit it. <laughs> I believe you're talking about Henry Louis Lewis yes. Baltimore who disappeared yes. from, he was a Michigan State student and he disappeared from his apartment. 
um, shortly before he was due to graduate. I don't remember the year, but it was shortly before he was due to graduate. So um, a very sad case Mm -hmm. from what I can tell, Mm -hmm. but I don't know what happened. And so So we'll be able to share with everyone next week. I'll see if we can come up with something. So anyway, thanks for joining us guys again. If you enjoy the podcast, even if you didn't hit the like button, um, ring the bell and uh, subscribe because uh, it really helps us out. So Sans, I love you, love you, love you. And love you uh, too. we'll see you again next week. Okay. Bye Sounds guys. Sounds great. Bye. Thank you all.